Welcome back to Driven Minds. My name is Gillian, and this is a Type 7 podcast. So most of you guys know me as Gigi because that is what I've introduced myself as in every episode before this one, but my real name is Gillian with a hard G. And while Gigi has always been my nickname, I decided to go by it full time, I think around like two, three years ago, because I was so GD done with people calling me Jillian. I don't know why I couldn't just say goddamn, but I don't know. I'm always like really scared to curse on this podcast. Not that that's cursing, but anyway, they'd call me Jillian when it's pronounced Gillian. So I am reclaiming my birth name, trying it on for size. So please bear with me. So this is the first episode of the third season. I can't believe that I get another season of talking to the people I admire about how they get through challenging periods of their lives because, guys, mental health is literally all we have. We are our brains. Mental health affects everything, how we think, how we feel, how we act. It also helps determine how we handle stress how we relate to others, how we make choices, the whole enchilada, as my grandma would say. But if you want the full rundown as to why we're doing this podcast and why I am the host, please listen to the very first episode of Driven Minds because I explain it all plus more. I actually think I give too much information away and it's really awkward because I had a first date the other night and someone came up to me and was like, I listened to the first episode and I was like, fuck, you know literally everything about me. But um, anyway, I'm going to stop talking because my producer says my episode intros are too long and that no one listens. So if you're hearing this, first off, thank you for listening and proving Michael wrong. So I'm going to go tell him to take a hike. So the guest kicking off the third season is Margaret Cho. Margaret is a comedian, actress, activist, and musician. If you've seen her stand-up, you'll know that she goes deep into everything from sexuality to race, addiction, the whole nine. So I first got wind of Margaret when a friend of mine sent me a stand-up video of hers that was going around the interwebs a few years ago, but I fell in love with her after seeing an episode of All-American Girl, which was the 90s sitcom she starred in on ABC Family. It is everything and more. It is like 90s nostalgia comfort blanket vibes. So leave a whole Sunday because you won't want to stop watching. Margaret was surrounded by a flock of very doting animals when we kicked off the conversation. And that's all I'm going to say. Please enjoy the episode. Here it is, my conversation with Margaret Cho. Lucia Caterina. Do you call her something for short, or is it like a full Lucia Caterina every time? Chichi. Chichi. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mostly Lucia, or um, her Korean name is Cho Rucha. Wow. Because um, you have to have like a three syllable name. You say the last name first. Got it. Cho Rucha. So it's Lucia Rucha. Uh-huh. That's, her, that's her Korean name. But she responds to Chichi, Lucia. And um, Chorucha. But also, uh, I have Sacra Cur Saudade is uh, the cat, one cat. And then there's Sarang John Child, who's the other cat. And there's Uju Ud Cluzo. Wow. Who's the third cat. 
So they all have very um, important and poetic names. Sacre-Cœur is deaf, so I almost never say her name. So how do you guys communicate then? Sometimes I do like a pattern of lights, like a Morse code. That's incredible. I'll do like some like signs, which are not as um, clear, but she seems to sort of, we seem to have sort of a telepathic, she won't come over here. We have a little bit of a telepathic thing. <laughs> Besides now, now is the one exception. Right now. She, well, she's behind me because she knows something's happening. Right. And um, she definitely wants to walk on the keyboard. Yeah. No, I mean, as one does. She, she, you she know? knows something's happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Margaret, you were by far the most fun guest to research. And while I was researching you, I read a fun fact in Us Magazine, which, as we know, is the gold standard for factual information. <laughs> so please feel free to correct me accordingly. But I read that you have unfinished tattoos because yes. they hurt too much. And I do not have tattoos, so I can't speak to the pain. But I did hear that part of the thrill of getting tattoos is the pain. So I take it that this is not a thing for you. No, I actually didn't mind most of the pain. But um, after a while, is almost 70% of my body is tattooed. So I have them all over on like really painful areas like my sternum and my butt. And um, the behind my knees, Oof. which is terrible. Yeah. So after a while, your body doesn't make the kind of endorphins that it does because your body is aware that you're not injured. You're doing it on purpose. Right. So your body sort of figures that out and stops producing the kind of tattoo high that people talk about getting like almost like a pain trance. Right. Also, I have a slight allergy to some of the... Um, like plastics and weird like trace metals in tattoo ink. And um, some of them will raise up on my body, which is really weird. So it's almost like a, um, a brand. No, it's interesting. I started reading about the toxicity of tattoo ink. And that's actually one of the reasons why, I mean, one of the many reasons why I opted out of tattoos because I have really bad health anxiety. So I was like, oof, like, yeah. unless I know what's in that, I'm not totally sure about that. That, and I'm also Jewish. So if you get a tattoo, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery, according to my dad. So right. that's been verboten my whole life. Right. Was your first tattoo under your parents' roof? Because from my understanding, you come from a pretty conservative and uh, traditional Korean family. I do, but my family also owned a gay bookstore and all of the employees were heavily tattooed. This is in the 70s. So in San Francisco, right? In San Francisco, they were heavily tattooed. I remember in like 1981, we had a photograph of my dad's favorite um, employee who had a full bodysuit by Ed Hardy. Oh my God. And uh, he was on the beach naked, his entire back and backside, was a photo on our refrigerator because uh -huh. they were so impressed by the tattoo. And huh? so I always knew that I would be a heavily tattooed person, not just like one or two or like a tramp stamp. Or I always knew that I was going to have a full body thing. And it was always very attractive to me. And, um, you know, my parents were surprised, but I didn't start until I was in my 30s. Would you say your parents were conservative then or because they seem pretty cool if they're having like nude photos of body art on their fridge? Yeah, no, they were equal measures of both conservative 
and they still are. They're both conservative and totally their own creation. You know, they're very artistic. They're both musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they're both very, like, free thinking, but they come from a very conservative country and Korea is very patriarchal. But they're both pretty much like their own kind of being. They're influenced by their culture, both being from Korea in the 50s, mm-hmm. 40s and 50s, to um, being in San Francisco in the 70s. You know, they're, they're kind of both. I'm curious if their conservatism affected you when it came to your outlook on sex, because my parents were also very conservative. And this whole sex is bad trope and sexual desire is transgressive was really embedded into my psyche. And to give you a visual here, my mom would monitor my AOL IM chats. I don't know if you remember AIM or any of that, but she would monitor my chats with boys. And I wasn't allowed to wear bikinis because they were too revealing. And I was only allowed to wear tankinis. And I was the only loser on senior spring break wearing a tankini, which might've been cool in the nineties, but by 2008 tankinis had reached like social pariah status. So it was just like these subtle messages that were also just like blatant at times that really colored my view of sex and still honestly in some way almost affects me to my, to this day. And I have to very consciously go against it. I think what was weird about my family is that sexuality didn't exist in um, a heterosexual context, but it did in a gay context. In what way? It's almost like um, sexuality wasn't a thing for straight people. It was for gay people. <laughs> it's really weird. Okay, so they'd only acknowledge homosexuality, but not so much heterosexuality? Homosexuality was the only thing that existed. Heterosexuality didn't exist. And um, they still haven't told me where babies come from. Right. right. And you're still a virgin, too. If, as far as they're concerned, like, I still don't know. Yeah. And I'm 53. They're like, well, that's kind of for other people, but... You know, we don't do sex. We don't do anything sexual. We don't. Yeah. Sex doesn't doesn't exist. So it was kind of puritanical, but also really outrageous because there was um, all of these uh, gay men who um, they were very much like in polyamorous relationships. They were very much all in love with my dad. My dad's very handsome. And they were all very, like, uh, flirtatious with him, flirtatious with each other. And, you know, in the 70s, this was before AIDS, and so you had this influx of men from all over the world coming to San Francisco who were walking down the street in full-on cowboy and leather daddy (laughs) costumes. Like, it was like choose your fighter, like sailor, leather daddy, cowboy, (laughs) fireman. Right. Yeah, it was like Magic Mike, but in the 70s, it was everywhere, and it was totally normal. All of the uh, businesses were gay-themed, either gay bars or, like, hamburger bars that had, like, um, muscle men on the menu. Love it. Love it. Appetizing. You know, it was was very uh, sexualized, but none of it approached heterosexual norms at all, so it was almost like... um, Sexuality is real, but only for gay people, which I think is actually very healthy because there's a playfulness attached to that form of uh, sexualization that uh, lends itself to a male idealization like in Tom of Finland imagery, Mm -hmm. fantasy, costuming, 
play, uh, BDSM, all those things were very healthy and normalized. How did that color your view of recognizing your own sexuality, which my understanding you're bisexual. So how would that play out for you? Like, was that a part that you were ashamed of or how did you approach that? It was something that was really uh, confusing because I always felt like I always identified as gay anyway from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then my heterosexual side didn't develop until much later, probably, um, not until my, at least my mid-20s, did I sort of start to feel like, oh, there's something else happening and right. I should explore that and try to figure it out. Um, Do you think this was a consequence of the messaging that you were receiving? Not exactly, but it, in a sense, my homosexuality was so supported. Right. Whereas my heterosexuality was like, oh, that's weird. Right, <laughs> like, right. That's really... A funny kind of a way to approach it. Like, it was almost like the opposite of most people's messaging growing up at that time. So you grew up in San Francisco, and you got into stand-up really young, from what I understand. What made you gravitate towards it? Oh, I always loved the art form, and I loved um, stand-up comedy. Uh, San Francisco was a very big stand-up comedy city. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to the radio before I'd go to school, and they would have stand-up comedians on. There was a show that was on the New Wave station, and they would have uh, comedians on from like 6 in the morning to 10 in the morning, and I would listen every day, and I got to know everybody, and then I just uh, I got into school, and I was in an art school, and um, I had a teacher who would sign us up for stand-up comedy open mic nights. So I started doing that. And I had a partner in the beginning, and it was Sam Rockwell, who's actually a very famous and accomplished actor. Yeah. There's some video of us on YouTube doing comedy. Oh, my God. But um, it's really it's really cute, you know. And uh, he ended up going to New York and living there. And I stayed, and I stayed in comedy because I just loved it. I didn't want to be a child anymore. And it was really um, such a welcoming world. Even though I was so different from everybody, there was something about it that was really exciting. And I uh, was really taken care of, you know, by Mm -hmm. all of the adults there. Um, It was really meaningful to be taken seriously as an artist at that young of an age and also as an um, autonomous being, even though I was a really young person. And uh, it gave me the sense of needing to become an adult. Like I had to learn how to drive so that I could go to comedy shows, that I could drive myself, so I could go to gigs. Um, and I started to like learn how to stay in a hotel, which is like mm-hmm. really kind of yeah. weird as a teenager. So how old were you? You know, this? not going with your friends to party. 16, 17. Okay. You know, like checking into a hotel. Yeah. I can't even imagine it now. As hotels are such a big part of my life, but mm-hmm. they used to be such a, a crazy, luxurious idea. Yeah. Now it's such a normalized thing, but back then it was so crazy to do. When was the first time that you got feedback or affirmation that not only you were funny, but that this could be a viable path for you to pursue? Oh, right away. I mean, right away, because I was able to perform and 
be good at it right away, to um, kind of feel very seen and understood. Mm-hmm. When you're a comedian, you really know when you're understood. So that's a great right. feeling, and it makes you want to push forward. And so I just um, connected with that emotion. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the affirmation was that I, I was also successful very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to make a living and um, pretty much be thriving by the age of 18, which is like also incredible too. So that power gave me a lot of strength to keep going. I think it gave me a lot of confidence to be, you know, on my own, to move to Los Angeles, to uh, embark on this very sort of scary career because I had sort of affirmation from an audience Mm -hmm. that I could do well, that I could be funny and that I could be a good artist. What was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome starting out? Or was it really surprisingly smooth sailing? I mean, it's always the gender and racial barriers that Mm -hmm. we face in entertainment. You know, as an Asian American queer woman, the longest issue was invisibility. Right. Wanting to be an actor, trying to be cast in things was really hard. Mm -hmm. As a comedian... It was less of an issue, but also there was less community. You know, for the longest time, I was the only Asian-American comedian. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a great community of Asian-American comedians, but they only started to appear pretty much in recent years. I mean, for the majority of my career, I was the only one out there. So how would you cope with this invisibility? It was just something that it was like a, it was more of an existential issue because I was still able to work. Right. But that... Um, feeling of kind of being isolated in my own experience was odd, you know, and then you're um, really trying to find community in these spaces. But I definitely found that with other queer women, other queer women of color, but it didn't really uh, happen for um, Asian Americans until pretty recently. And then Asian Americans, queer Asian Americans, really recently. Right. uh, Which is really great. So I, I'm lucky in that, like, I was able to just sort of keep going and experience what that was like to be the only one. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really grateful now that there are so many wonderful Asian American comedians out there who are doing such a great job. By the time you're 18, you're supporting yourself, you're thriving in stand-up. And then you star in All American Girl, which, by the way, I have fully binged from beginning to end. And oh, yeah. I'm late to the party because I was five when it came out. But for me, because I grew up with ABC Family, like I lived for ABC. And it really was one of those canonical 90s feel-good shows. Yes, totally. So that was how I experienced it. It was also very Disney because we wore a lot of layered shirts. So you would have like a a tank top (laughs) and like a bralette under the tank top and then like a sort of a lacy shirt and then like (laughs) kind of a big shirt. Like it's such a weird – I don't know why we wore so many things in the 90s. We wore so many like layers of clothes. But – It was a cool thing to be a part of. You know, we had all of these weird pressures on us that were added on because we were an Asian-American family. And all those pressures were really connected with being the first. It's very hard to be first. Right. It's very hard to be um, bearing the weight of all of that pressure 
when you're so unused to even being seen. So I think for us, it was really um, difficult. But what it did forge was an intense closeness between all of the actors. Mm-hmm. We're all really good friends. And we uh, talk a lot, you know, and we have a deep connection because we were there together. So that's really special. You know, that's really, really the best part of it. And yeah, it's been 28 years, which is still incredible to think about. Yeah. And it totally still holds up. Like it's still funny. It's still, by the way, the outfits are something I'd wear now. You know, you're like little leather I know, so outfits and the little, <laughs> sheath, the little sheath dresses. Yeah, they're adorable. And how was the vibe on set? Because I also read that there was some turmoil behind the scenes. Oh, there was so much turmoil, but it was also like varied because um, there was a million things happening. I was considered way too fat to play the role of myself. This was the 90s. It was before this idea that women could have any shape or size to them at all. And I just was like not used to being looked at in that way because I was comedian. So I I never thought about my body or any of that or what I look like at all because that was my main focus. And so that was also very like shattering to deal with. Um, And so, you know, there was a million things that were difficult. Like we were kind of in this space of coming to television right after the LA riot. So the last time Koreans had seen themselves were um, in Koreatown on the rooftops with rifles. Right. So they were incredibly um, paranoid about their perception, uh, the the society's perception of Koreans, Korean Americans, um, and in a sense, didn't know how to be seen. So, and also I was young, I was queer, I was um, very much uh, a feminist, not what that era of Korean Americans identified themselves as. Were you openly queer at this time? Yeah, pretty much. I I had talked about it in um, my comedy a lot, yet it was so... We didn't have social media then. We didn't have the same kind of press around it. We didn't have the same kind of awareness. I mean, it wasn't, I was never, I never felt like the pressure to be closeted. Right. Because that sort of never came up. It was almost like I had so many identities attached to me that it was hard to parse through them. Not only was I a woman in comedy in a very male-dominated industry at that time, Mm -hmm. I was also Asian-American. I was also very young, and I was also like not foreign, right? not sort of stereotypical what we think about Asian women being. There was too many things to process, I think, for people. This is also before Ellen came out, right? Wasn't Ellen on the air at this time, too? Yes, she was. She was, yes. And this was pre-coming out, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that that didn't happen until a few years later, too. So it was really um, this thing where uh, we, we couldn't process all of the layers of identity that existed for women, for comedians, for artists in general. I read that that you came up with issues when you did try to diet on set and that opened a whole host of problems. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, I think that like I've always been inclined towards substance abuse and alcoholism and it's something that has always existed, Mm -hmm. you know, but in general, like I had been okay until about that point, but 
you know, when you introduce like this idea of like, oh, you should be anorexic. Right, right. You know, it opened up a whole host of problems, <laughs> which would never quite resolve. I mean, even now, although I have quite a few years of not doing anything like that, you know, I don't drink alcohol and I don't take drugs of any kind. And there's no abuse of anything like that in my life. But the the unease of having that sort of mindset of addiction, of alcoholism, of eating disorders, all of that has really been present. And it was probably exacerbated by being on television or being an artist in the 90s. Our heroes were killing themselves. Right. There was quite a lot of that going on in the culture. So it wasn't um, an isolated thing. It was part of the mindset. And it was Gen X. Right. You know, it was a very nihilistic generation. Yeah, Brady Stanellis. Yeah, it's it's great in a sense because in nihilism, in um, that kind of um, dark existential thinking, there is a great emergence of positivity mm-hmm. and emergence of like it's a it's like memento memento mori like. Like, we're going to die, so you might as well have fun before. Totally live fast, die young. Yeah, or it's better to burn out than fade away. Right, <laughs> right. Is, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's better to burn out. I don't, I don't, think, it's, you don't, I don't think you have to fade away either. Yeah, but when you were young, I guarantee you probably didn't see it like that. Yeah, you just sort of, like, learn to embrace that. But really, it's, there's actually a lot to learning how to feel good and learning how to grow. So I am... Um, I grow my own strawberries and I grow my own tomatoes <laughs> and I'm really like into like a very positive existence with all these animals and I have bird feeders outside. I have 28 bird feeders. Wow. Yeah, but I'm re- I'm at war with the squirrels because the squirrels really love all of the bird feeder food and they eat all the fruit. So I just have to like set up a squirrel uh, feeder far away from everything to uh, distract them. Crucial. I want to go back quickly to what you mentioned about addiction. Did the addiction start during the show when all this pressure to lose weight and be this Hollywoodified version of yourself? Is that when it began or did it begin after the show was off air? No, the addiction began probably much earlier. I think that there's always been that side to me. I def- definitely feel like that was um, part of my life, but then I would be distracted from that by show business. I was distracted from that by comedy. Um, I was driving on the road, so I couldn't drink alcohol. Right. I was uh, going from gig to gig, so I just didn't have time. So it would keep making emergencies throughout my life, but it didn't really take over until I was in my late 20s, where I had a modicum of success, and yet I had all of this sort of like perceived failure behind me, which really is when it got bad. You know, it was only until I had some adulthood that my addiction sort of became adult as well. I always had problems with alcohol and drugs, but it never really took over until much later in life. And and then even later, still like... Um, you know, it, it's something that I have to be vigilant about because it'll keep appearing mm-hmm. if I don't deal with it. So I've had years of therapy, 
years of um, involvement in recovery communities because it's just not something that you can deal with. I mean, for me, it's something that's so rooted in my DNA. I have a long family history of alcoholism, depression, substance abuse, Mm -hmm. suicidal ideation. It's something that really runs in my family, but it's not acknowledged culturally because in Korean society, it's a very taboo subject to even broach. Right. You know, I've had many relatives who've just been put away. Right. In institutions and you don't see them again. So you don't know. So it's a weird thing of like, it's like death, but it's not death. Yeah. Recovery is something that is some, that's not really talked about in Korean society. You said you hit a breaking point though in your late twenties when it did all culminate and kind of grow into a monster. What did that look like? Was there a moment or a wake-up call that made you understand the severity of your addiction? Well, I uh, I had a boyfriend who was like a, a crack addict, and um, he and I uh, were tooling around. I, I crashed into a car in the middle of the night in East L.A., and a bunch of guys got out, and I was like screaming at them so crazy in the middle of the street, wearing high platforms and a miniskirt and um, – a child's T-shirt, like an a infant's, a toddler's shirt that said 3X on the label. Oh, my God. And I was screaming at these, like, 10 guys so crazy that at the end of it, they were like, man, please, we just want to go home. And oh my <laughs> so God. we get back in the car, and we went back to my apartment, and I remember waking up in the morning, and there was a urine stain in the middle of the bed. But we couldn't, we were both so wasted, we couldn't figure out who peed the bed. Uh-huh. And we're, like, yelling at each other, like, you have a problem, though, you have a problem. And he was like, you know, like the kind of boyfriend of late that's like very fashionable to have like Machine Gun Kelly or um, Travis Barker. <laughs> he was like that. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yes. Yes. May or may not have crushes. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Those kind of guys. And he was like, why don't we go to uh recovery group? And so we went and I really stayed with it. Like I really took to it. But that kind of thinking of like, I'm going to improve myself got to such a fever pitch because by Y2K, I was abstinent in several different programs. I was uh, a raw vegan chef. Wow. Kind of like in the TV show Bad Vegan. I was a chef, but not heating anything above 121 degrees. That sounds like a stomach nightmare for me. It was a nightmare. So I was so controlling over every aspect of my life in that regard that I went nuts. So then I went the opposite way. Right. So it's been basically like that for my entire life is these extremes. So now my extreme is kind of like moderation and that like my moderation is I grow herbs, <laughs> which is like, which the birds eat. Okay. So it's late 20s. You guys both peed the bed or TBD who peed the bed. Uh-huh. And you go to recovery with him. And what yeah. what does it look like balancing recovery with your career, or did you make mental health your full time job at this time? Oh my no, my career totally flourished. And in the '90s, those communities were so amazing because we didn't have smartphones. We had newspapers. Mm-hmm. We had paper maps. We had pencils. We had <laughs> vintage corduroy jeans. Oh my god! That would flip 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 flip. And I was around these communities of very famous, very gorgeous, recovering artists, actors, musicians who were forging ahead and doing incredible work. 
some of whom didn't make it. Right. Some of whom went on to incredible success. You know, it was actually a time that was very alive and very beautiful, you know, and I'm glad I had that in my 20s. Right. You know, but it it gets, you know, like you you adjust the um, the frame, you adjust everything, you let in more light, you uh, darken it. It depends on your outlook. Did you guys stay together? You and the, the bed sharer? No, no. He, um, he moved back to New York. Got it. He's a dad. He's fine. Yeah, okay. All he right. grew out of all that stuff sometimes um, without any kind of recovery or any of that. So, And I usually, if I'm with somebody, I usually stay with, uh, in contact at least with them yeah. for my entire life. That's really nice. All of my exes hate me. <laughs> I want to talk about relationships because you've said something which I love, which is that you hope you'll die alone and that you think it's gross to sleep with the same person for the rest of your life. And while this definitely resonates, and I also love lying alone in my bed with crumbs, <laughs> there are also so many times that I end up staying in a relationship out of attachment, out of just fear of being alone. And I'm trying to get better at it, but I just wanted to talk to you about it because you seem to have cultivated this incredible sense of self-worth and confidence, you know, so much so that you're able to go against the status quo, which encourages and rewards coupling up. Well, I really like to live alone and I've never really allowed myself to. And, you know, now it's really just such a joy. I And I have, I mean, I'm not alone. I have four creatures who share the bed with me. So <laughs> these animals are really special and really important. And I just feel good. I don't know. Like I, maybe if there's space for somebody else, there might be, but right now I'm not actively seeking that or courting that. You do go through a change. Like menopause is a kind of second puberty where you realize who you actually are. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of attention put on puberty those gross countdowns to 18, whether it's Britney or uh, Millie Bobby Brown, it's so awful. It's so twisted. It's like this Lolita complex that like riddles our society. It's disgusting, but people pay less attention to menopause and how actually important it is when you lose a kind of identity, but the emphasis is on, is on loss. It's not on gaining Yes. And I realized that I've gained an entire new outlook on life through menopause that has really lent itself to a realization of a, a fuller self that I wasn't aware of. I've talked about this with other podcast guests as well, how aging, especially women aging, society just barks like, what can we do to avoid this? You know, it's like, the rhetoric we use with this anti-aging serum and, you know, this this prevalence of the word youth and all the advertising marketing to 34 plus women, you know, like keep your youth forever. And I'm like, oh my God, I never want to go back to my youth. <laughs> you know, like I love who I am the older I get. And I'd love to hear more about that. You know, like what came with menopause, what, cause I, I want to look forward to it. And I don't know why it's so stigmatized, you know? It's just like remnants of the patriarchy and the fear of the power of age and women. Yeah. Because we stop caring about men, and that's terrifying for the patriarchy. Right. And that women live longer than men. 
Yes, we do, which is why I'm looking for someone younger than me. <laughs> Just wanted to shamelessly yeah. plug that. It's good. But it's also like um, this idea that we'll be around when they're not. They've got to keep us contained somehow. So with the the uh, ingrained fear that societal pushes on to us to remain youthful, remain sexually viable. You can be sexually viable as an older woman, too. You can be sexually viable as a menopausal woman. Your sexual viability has nothing to do with what we look like younger or older. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't mean that we're um, not sexual. It's just that your attention around sex is removed from your hormonal responses towards sex. Mm -hmm. So the sex that I'm choosing to have isn't driven by hormonal urges to procreate. It's more of um, real pleasure that I'm seeking. And it's it's a different kind of um, response. So I think that like any kind of outlook that we have, so much of it is informed by society and all of the television and movies we've grown up, books we've grown up reading, Mm -hmm. everything, advertising, everything, all the messages that we hear, even familial messages that, you know, we've been told, a lot of it doesn't apply when you're menopausal. What advice would you have given to yourself in your 30s pre-menopausal enlightenment? Just that it gets better. It gets better and better. And that it's like not to fear any of it, not to fear age or um, not to fear aloneness, not to fear um, any of that. It's like we have so much to look forward to always. And um, it's all a process. I wanted to talk about sexual assault, if that's okay with you, because there's a quote you've said in reference to your experience that really resonated with me. And it is a big part of why I just don't shut up about my experiences with sexual assault is I want other people who've suffered to know they aren't alone. And that idea of sharing experiences so people feel less alone is truly why I live and breathe and walk this earth. So for anyone who doesn't know your story, could you share your experience? Well, I've had so many. Like I've had so many inappropriate to like absolutely horrific experiences in whether it's rape, whether it's assault, whether it's um, visual assault. Like I remember being like a kid walking down the street, like seeing three or four uh, flashers a week. Like Mm -hmm. it's why I really love my parents who put me in this environment where I was just around gay men. (laughs) Like it was such a relief to be free of predatory male sexuality as a young female child. Right. To be a feeling safe around men was such a gift. Was your abuser ever held accountable? I have so many abusers. (laughs) Like I have so many abusers and... None of them were ever held accountable. I'm so sorry to hear that. Nobody has ever been held accountable. But it's almost like you kind of go, well, maybe they're 
uh, being held accountable by their own lives and by their own fear. That's one of the things that is relieving me too about um, menopause. Not that it doesn't happen to older women. It's just that you have a different mindset around all of the abuse, I think. For me, at, at least that's true. Yeah. Is that my uh, hormonal responses are removed from what happened and I can just objectively look at it as being terrible and tragic. Right. As opposed to feeling as much of a violation because there's some part of me that transcends it in my own body now that I wasn't really able to before I was menopausal. So it's a different way of looking at it, which is an interesting thing. Um, Right. It doesn't hurt me as much as it did because I have a different physical response to any of that. It makes you a lot more powerful. Just to clarify, part of the power comes in like radical acceptance of sorts and of the situation of what happened and knowing that you're not damaged just because someone acted just so horrifically. Right. You're not damaged in any way. And it's never, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's none of the things that happened to us was a choice or we were never at fault. That when you can uh, really remove the idea of um, fault and error from any yeah. of the things that we did, like, that's really important too. And so... It's, it's taken me a long time. You know, it's like I've gotten to a really good place with all of the abuse. But I think the one thing that's really helped me accept it is really age. Mm. It's kind of acceptance, but it's almost like you can't really accept violence that's happened towards you. Right. Like it's, it's not exactly acceptance because I, I don't accept it, but I can reject it in a way that isn't uh, a denial. Why did you first open up about it and what happened when you did? Um, well, I've always been open about it, but it's never really taken hold, um, I think, until maybe society really opened up to hearing it. You know, it wasn't until, um, like, people just didn't, would just, like, reject it. Even if you try to talk about it in stand-up comedy, people would just be like, oh, that's not, I don't want to hear about that. It's not funny. Because they want to hear, like, comedians being empowered. You'd get, like, a reaction from the audience whenever yeah. you joke about your sexual abuse? Yeah, they don't want to hear about it. They're like, uh, you know, like, it's almost like um, you, when comedians are uh, successful, you want them to continue to be successful. You want their comedy to reflect that success. And only, I think, recently have we been able to allow... Uh, that fallibility within artists. Right, right. Um, yeah. But comedians have to have a superpower. You know, they want to hear you win. It's one of the things that people love right. comedy because it's the unlikely winner. And so that's one mm-hmm. of the things that is most appealing. But you can't... Um, for a long time, it was just impossible to be able to deal in subjects like sexual abuse as a comedian. Maybe now more, 
because more of it's allowed in society right. to talk about. But still, it's a challenge. So I had always sort of like tried to approach it as an artist, but it was never um, really acceptable in society, probably until maybe 2016, 17, something like that. Right, which is like literally yesterday. So if you couldn't use your stand-up and your art form to heal the trauma, how did you end up working on it? Oh, many years of therapy, many years of different kinds of therapy. I think um, in the therapy world, what I found most helpful for that was EMDR. Mm, Yes. Because it's something that's so secular about it, and it's just like lights and paddle, like beats. It's so removed from talk therapy. Mm-hmm. It's just different. It's all sensorial. And for trauma, I think it's really helpful. For people who have tried different things, I think that's really been helpful for me. What advice would you have for other people that are dealing with any sort of trauma? I think therapy is really good. I think therapy is really helpful. I think also finding the right therapist is really helpful. Yeah. Um, I also think recovery communities are helpful, but people should be mindful that when you're in recovery communities, you're also with other people who are sick. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's definitely um, to be aware of that. In terms of like energy rubbing off and kind of like absorbing other people's problems. Also getting into relationships with that. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, can be very helpful for those communities, mm-hmm. but also damaging. It's about being aware though, yeah. of, of what's going on. And, um, it, it, you know, therapy in general, seeking any kind of therapy is really important. It's The worst thing is isolation for any of this. I, I totally hear you. It's funny. I went to a psychiatric hospital to deal with my OCD, and there was two rules if you broke these two rules, you'd get kicked out. And one was obviously no substances. And the second was zero interunit romance of any kind. And I actually ended up in a romance during it. And it was like two people that were trying to heal themselves, like using each other in this like sick attachment kind of like, oh, you'll heal me. I heal you. I'm totally codependent on you. You're codependent on me. And it ended up just like absolutely like as bad as something could possibly end. And it's really, yeah. and I didn't understand it because I've always been just very reluctant to submit to any sort of authority. I've always hated rules. So I was like, you know what? Like it's yeah. sexy time. I haven't slept with anyone for three months and it just ended up exploding in my face. So I very much. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Very much think that that is a very valid thing, like not to replace your trauma with obsession or to kind of just put a bandaid on it in any sort of way you can, which a lot of the times is love because love is truly addiction as they've proven in MRI scans, you know, like the same kind of yeah. the same part of your brain that's activated right. when you fall in love is the same part of the brain that activates a heroin addict when they, you know, want heroin or see heroin. Right. And when you're conditioned to drama, you seek other trauma. So it's like water seeks its own level. Yeah. We seek to uh, re-abuse, to re-violate ourselves. Like it's a very strange thing. It's like a, 
thing where abuse becomes comfortable and so you seek it again and like our psyche is so intelligent we can find those people that are going to do that to re-traumatize what drives you i just love uh getting up and taking care of my animals and um tending to my garden and cooking delicious food and above 121 degrees yeah, I was just going to say, no no more fibrous. No, but I bake bread at 500 degrees. And, uh, you know, just basic things in life that are really gratifying. I love um, making calamansi juice, um, which mm-hmm. is a Filipino lime. I love nature documentaries. It's just like the, the simple joys of living, which I think is really important. That, my friends, was Margaret Cho. You can follow her on Instagram at Margaret underscore Cho and me at Gillian Sagansky, but not Jillian Sagansky on both Twitter and Instagram. I always want to hear what you think of this episode and every episode. And I also want to know who you want to hear from next, who you don't want to hear from. If you want to share that with me, your thoughts, your feelings, your concerns. I'm clearly very lonely and have a lot of time on my hands. So uh, yeah, be in touch. So if you're still listening to this, also thank you so much for proving my producer wrong again. That's right, Michael. How does that feel? Until next time. I'm going to calm down.